This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is community supported. If you value this content, please visit for the wild.world to make a donation. Also, if you or someone you know records music and you want to hear it on the show, You'll find a submission form on the website. Bravo in advance. The silence is broken by somebody crying, trying to be heard, never a word. Always the attitude, sort out your own, always alone. Wishing for something the world is denying. Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying. Somebody wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell, wishing to help. Someone was listening, someone who cared, never despaired. Someone to lean on and someone to trust. Who needs your assistance and finds your disguise? Welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Today we will join Bill McKibben from Vermont to discuss the news from the front line of climate chaos, as well as the many facets of the resistance. Bill McKibben is an author and environmentalist who in 2014 was awarded the Right Livelihood Prize, sometimes called the Alternative Nobel. His 1989 book, The End of Nature, is regarded as the first book for a general audience about climate change, and has appeared in 24 languages. He's gone on to write a dozen more books. He's the founder of 350.org, the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement which has organized 20,000 rallies around the world in every country, save North Korea, spearheaded the resistance to the Keystone Pipeline, and launched the fast-growing fossil fuel divestment movement. The Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, he was the 2013 winner of the Gandhi Prize and the Thomas Merton Prize, and holds honorary degrees from 18 colleges and universities. Foreign policy named him to the inaugural list of the world's hundred most important global thinkers, and the Boston Globe said he was probably America's most important environmentalist. A former staff writer for The New Yorker, he writes frequently for a wide variety of publications around the world, including the New York Review of Books, National Geographic, and Rolling Stone. He lives in the mountains above Lake Champlain with his wife, the writer Sue Halpern, where he spends as much time as possible outdoors 
In 2014, biologists honored him by naming a new species of woodland gnat in his honor. Well, thank you so much, Phil, for joining us today. This is truly an honor to speak with you, and we're all really excited. What a pleasure for me to get to join you, Anna. (laughs) Thank you. I'm just very grateful for your work, your writing, and how it has shaped climate change because it allowed it to become more visible on this global political stage. And while many in the environmental movement tend to sugarcoat reality, you don't. So thank you so deeply for joining us today and just sitting and collectively pondering this unraveling of our time. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's hard to strike the right balance between being honest about where we are and not causing too much despair. And that's that's a subtle balance, but I, I hope we do it more or less right most of the time. Oh, yeah, I'm right there with you. I live in that world between being able to look honesty directly in the face and the despair that comes with that at times. And what keeps me going is the love of this earth and being able to just be grateful for the immense wonder that is this life. I've heard you and other campaigners especially Clayton Thomas Mueller, who we've had on the show from 350.org, say that continuing operations in the tar sands is, quote, game over for the climate as civilization depends on it. This statement seems to be a reflection of the many tipping points of Earth's complex climate systems that we are soon to breach, if we haven't already. You know, the melting of the Arctic sea ice and the Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets, exceeding 400 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere, the rise in global average temperature, ocean acidification. Could you share with us your understanding of what tipping points appear to be unavoidable at this point? Sure. I've had a lot of time, of course, to think about this because I wrote the first book about climate change for a general audience back in 1989, which is almost 30 years ago. And at the time, we knew we were in trouble. We were pretty clear the planet was going to be heating up just because that's what happens when you pour CO2 into the air. But we didn't know how fast and we didn't know quite how hard it would pinch. And the story of the intervening 30 years is it happened really fast and it pinched really hard. So some things happened on a a truly huge scale. There's half as much or less sea ice in the summer Arctic than there was 30 years ago. That's a huge change on one of the two or three biggest physical features on our planet. The oceans are about 30% more acidic, and that's a huge problem and tipping point of its own. In many places in the Indian and Pacific Oceans, in the last few years, we've had these massive bleaching events on coral reefs that have killed off huge percentages of that ecosystem. The Great Barrier Reef, for instance, off Australia is the largest living structure on the planet, but it's about half as living as it was 18 months ago. And I think there's really no one at this point who thinks we can refreeze the Arctic or probably save most tropical coral reefs. Those ecosystems seem to be headed for extinction in the course of this century, though we will work very hard to try and keep it from happening. And there are plenty of other kind of tipping points on the way. We seem to have begun the fairly inexorable melt of ice in the Antarctic. At least a fair amount of sea level rise is now baked into the future, no matter what we do. At this point, I guess a way to say it is 
we're no longer trying to stop global warming. That's not on the menu of options. We're trying to keep it from getting any worse than it has to get. And that's an enormously important task because there's all the difference in the world between a planet that warms two degrees Celsius, that will be very, very difficult and miserable, and a planet that warms three degrees or, God forbid, four degrees Celsius, that'll be impossible. We won't survive as civilizations with that kind of warming. So the work that we do now is absolutely crucial, and it has to be done fast. The things that happen in the next five, ten years will tell over the course of tens of thousands of years. I don't think any of us truly understand what a deep time really feels like when we think the next five or ten years could dictate the survival of human civilization, as you just said. Do you mean civilization as we know it, or do you think that if it warms three, four degrees, that the human species itself will go extinct? No, humans are very adaptable, and some humans will survive, and we will figure out things and so on. But the civilizations we built are very vulnerable. They're in particular places. They depend on particular crops and and they're already under great stress. I mean, look what happens in a place like Syria when you have five years of drought in the first decade of this new century. That was enough to force a million or more farmers off their farms and with their families into already overcrowded Syrian cities. And that was enough, the academics tell us, to help kick off this revolt that now has turned the Middle East upside down, sent huge waves of refugees into Western Europe, turning their politics upside down, affecting even the politics of the United States and the rise of nativism here. And that's in one pretty small corner of the world, one anomalous drought. As those things happen over and over and over again, the effects will be large. There's just no getting around it. I want to bring up a potentially a radical thought about protecting civilization. Of course, part of me hears you speak about the war in Syria and the drought and how devastating to millions of innocent people, innocent species affected by these types of what you said anomalies. But do we really want to protect this civilization that has wrought so much havoc on earth in so many ways. Is it possible that civilization collapsing in the way it is now would actually be beneficial to not just other creatures and species, but humans as well? Well, you know, I suppose you could make that argument. But I guess I'd say, A, I don't think most humans are really implicated in what's going on. I mean, Most humans aren't putting much carbon in the atmosphere at all. And even those Western humans who are putting quite a bit in are not choosing really to pollute in that way. They'd all be just as happy running things off solar energy or wind power or or whatever else. It's a relative handful of fossil fuel industries and oil billionaires and things who have used their political clout to keep us from changing in any significant way. And it seems a little much to ask that we sacrifice our human species because these guys are jerks. Similarly, it seems, you know, if we allow climate change to get completely out of control, we're going to take down not just a lot of human civilizations. We're also going to do a number on a great 
percentage of the rest of the DNA on this planet. The other creatures, the flora and fauna of the late Pleistocene are our brothers and sisters too, and it seems wrong to take them down as well. So I think it's the important moral challenge of our time to figure out how to keep that from happening. Yes, I absolutely agree that it is the great challenge of our time to protect and conserve this incredible gift of biodiversity and thriving ecosystems. I just always take a moment to ask myself about this protection of civilization. You know, not to say I'm against renewables. I have solar panels. I live off the grid. And I also saw how many resources went into just this simple 200 square foot cabin and a simple solar array and how it continues this consumptive lifestyle. And I and I really try to sit with that. Is it all about renewables or is it also about stripping ourselves down and humbling ourselves? And I, and I don't mean everybody, like you said, so many people around the world are not even contributing to the carbon emissions that we're talking about, these large, large scale, you know, fossil fuel burning industries. But a lot of us in, say, the global north or in, you know, these wealthy developed worlds, I question a lot of our consumptive nature. Yeah, I think one of the nice things about renewable energy is that it tends to sort of move you in that direction anyway. People become more conscious of the fact that their energy comes from, say, the sun, and sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down. And, you know, it sort of leads to somewhat more consciousness of conservation and uh, living a little more lightly. And as that happens, I think people often find that that's kind of enjoyable anyway. Perhaps the world that we've imagined as the best of all possible worlds with this super high consumer culture we live in really isn't managing to make us all that incredibly happy. So maybe we can manage with something a little different. And those things all seem to go a little bit hand in hand. I don't think that humans need to um, be particularly hangdog about it all, though. There's a great deal of pleasure and joy and connection and community and all of that that's completely possible. And we don't need to feel guilty for every last kilowatt of energy that we use. I mean, the sun pumps out an immense amount of it every hour of every day, and it doesn't mind if we soak some of it up and make use of it. It is always, I think, important to remember to not get trapped in the guilt. We are consumers at, at our even our basic level, so it's just a an intense time, and I like to welcome different thoughts. I was reading another article that you had recently wrote in Rolling Stone, and I want to quote you saying, the surreal keeps becoming the commonplace. The planet's greenhouse gas emissions are still rising, though more slowly. Let's say we manage to top out by 2020. In that case, to meet the planet's goal of holding temperature increases under 2 degrees Celsius, we have to cut emissions 4.6% annually till they go to zero. If we wait till 2025, we have to cut them 7% annually. If we wait until 2030, it's not even worth putting on the chart. I have to sometimes restrain <laughs> myself from pointing out how easy it would be have been if we'd acted back in the late 1980s. It would have been much easier then, but we didn't. And so now we face a steeper challenge and it gets steeper each year we don't act. And that's the thing that worries me about the Trump years overall. Not that he'll forever keep us from doing the right thing. It's just that by the time we get around to doing the right thing, if we delay a while longer, 
gets exponentially harder. Look, everybody knows that in their own lives. It's always the things that we procrastinate on and delay with that end up, you know, biting us. That's why, to me, uh, moving fast now is crucial. We're doing a big push at 350.org over this year that we're calling Fossil Free Fast because speed is the crucial variable and the one that we tend to forget. This is not a issue where we have endless time. article in the guardian which was new york city just declared war on the oil industry to see this epicenter for finance globally have such a huge stand uh, in divestment and then the lawsuits i mean it's incredibly exciting and it does feel like it's ramping up speed i just would love to hear from you your thoughts on this and what are the implications of new york city taking action like this Yes, yesterday was a very exciting day. New York declared that it was divesting its pension funds, billions and billions of dollars from the fossil fuel industry, and that it was suing the five largest fossil fuel companies for the damages that come with that rising sea. It cost New York $20 billion to cope with Hurricane Sandy, for instance. And I think the way to think of it is that the mightiest city in the world, New York, its political hub with the UN and its financial hub with Wall Street, has declared war on the planet's richest, most powerful industry, the fossil fuel industry. And that's a new turn in this battle for the climate and a really important one. I think others will follow. And I think we're going to win this fight. The only worry I have is that, as I've said, is that we'll win it too late. So it's good to see people stepping up right now. We can't get anything done in Washington for the moment, obviously, because of Mr. Trump. 
So it's that much more incumbent on cities and states to provide the lead. Mm -hmm. So, right, taking it out of the hands of the federal government and moving it to more of a state level, community level divestment and action-oriented campaigns. That's where the power is. Yes, but it has to be coordinated in some way or another because we can't solve this sort of one house at a time, one block at a time. That's why things that go after the financial community and their support for the fossil fuel industry are so important right now. So hopefully this stand that New York City is taking will create a domino effect of other cities. I know other cities have already started this divestment from fossil fuels, but also hopefully create an open source model for other states to do the same thing. And and that's beginning to happen. San Francisco votes soon on divestment. We'll see if we can keep this momentum going. And what do you think the outcome would be? Let's just say 50% of states were to divest. There's been enough divestment already. It's about $6 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios that have divested that the uh, academics say that it's already begun to put a a noticeable drag on the ability of the fossil fuel industry to raise capital. And that gets more severe all the time. So I I don't think it takes 50%. I think this is a marginal business. You get five or 10% of pension funds and stuff saying, no, we're not going to do this anymore. And it becomes a real problem for this industry, which is good. They're a real problem for the planet. So we need to cause them what trouble we can. Because basically it's a kind of supply and demand type idea that if they're not being funded and they're not making money, then they'll either go out of business or change their tactics to renewable. Right. They'll have to change what they do. Mm. And I don't know whether there's still time left for them to really change and become renewable energy companies and things. We'll see. But we have to keep them from digging up the reserves of coal and oil and gas that they've identified because the science is very clear. If that stuff is dug up and burned, it will raise the atmospheric concentrations of CO2 past the point that any scientist thinks is even remotely safe. Mm. Well, speaking of the last reserves, you know, earlier this month, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which was snuck into the Republican budget plan, was opened for oil, uh, along with, it seems like, every ocean, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, surrounding this country was opened. And I had just recently read an article that shed light on some of the less acknowledged dimensions of oil in the Arctic and how it interacts with climate change. And apparently, studies that have been going on since the 1970s are showing how permafrost thaws and collapses into thermokarst surrounding roads and infrastructure, and how tundra plants are coated in dust up to a mile from roads as a result of trucks barreling past. And as this essential ground-covering vegetation dies, then permafrost melts faster So, gosh, I'm just curious what's on your mind regarding the Arctic in general and in response to the oil and gas death throes of the Trump administration. Yes, the Arctic is where we see the most powerful evidences of climate change. The physics of climate change means that the Arctic and the Antarctic will heat faster, especially the Arctic, 
as it's lost all that sea ice up there, that used to reflect a lot of the sun's rays back out to space, but now the blue water absorbs them, and this Arctic amplification then drives warming on land, and we get, as you say, the melt of permafrost. I was up in the Brooks Range of Alaska this summer, and it was very evident what was going on, and it certainly adds insult to injury to then proposed, as the president had done, that we would go into a wildlife refuge and drill for oil. That's just sick. That's a sign of a kind of grasping addiction. It's the same kind of behavior you see in people who start abusing substances and then just literally can't stop themselves. And I have high hopes that we'll be able to keep oil companies out of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I can't imagine being the oil company that decides its reputation will be enhanced by going into a wildlife refuge and drilling for oil. So we're going to continue to fight hard. But it was a very depressing moment. Absolutely. I had just the blessing of interviewing Faith Jamil and Princess Lukai from the Gwich'in Nation. And hearing their soul and how long they have fought and how many times they have fought and just how it's been, how the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge particularly has been in limbo. And to see it shattered, this protection shattered was so intense. Because like you said, it is sick. It's sick that we are willing to go into the last remaining places that are so remote to drill for oil. It's really intense. And, you know, it just seems quite clear that facts don't matter. And science has no credibility in this political regime. And if something is frowned upon, it is quietly snuck in, like the drilling of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge or the impending Curtis Bill, which would make Trump's move to rescind Bears Ears and Grand Escalante National Monuments ultimately legal. If politics are a dead end in this regime, what is the purpose of direct action in these times? The point is not that politics is impossible. It's that Politics requires lots of us out there in the field working hard. If we get three, four, five percent of Americans really engaged in this fight, doing the work, going to meetings, of being in the streets, of going to jail, of all the other things that need to happen, then we'll win. There's not that many people that work at the oil companies and they have endless money and money is left to its own devices, going to win every time. But if we don't leave it to its own devices, If we're out there building movements, then we have a fighting chance. We've blocked all kinds of things, pipelines and oil ports and new coal mines and fracking wells and on and on and on because people went and did the work. So there's no excuse for not doing it. That's what it seems to me. That's why we've set up things like 350.org. I so appreciate 350.org because it is organizing people in this way. But I do see there's this stagnancy sometimes in the movement where it seems like the other side, let's say the fossil fuel industry, seems to be so organized and so potent because they're able to move quickly with a lot of power. Why do you think that, let's say, the movement against this a lot of times doesn't gain the momentum? Is it because there truly is this power imbalance that's just so momentous to overcome? Or do you think we fall short because of other reasons, let's say horizontal hostility in this people's movement? 
well, those things may all be true, but I actually, I think we've done surprisingly well. <laughs> I've been impressed over the last seven or eight years to watch the rise of a climate movement and to watch how much damage it's done. We've won a surprising number of battles. And I think my mantra just becomes when we fight, we often win. So we might as well fight more often. And, you know, there's always going to be things that make that difficult. People and personalities and money and everything else can get in the way. But when you're actually out in the middle of a fight, those things are less important and people tend to figure them out. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Bill, so much for your tireless work. On we go. Take care. Thanks for joining Bill McKibben and I today on For the Wild podcast. Our deep gratitude to Marie Sue, who contributed her song Black Snakes for this episode. There's an open call for submissions to have your music played on the program. Just visit forthewild.world where you'll find a link to send us your submissions. Thank you to our producers, March Young and Reach Out, our research director, Madison Mogolski, and our media director, Molly Lebov. I'm Ayana Young. Stay tuned in weeks ahead for author of The Hidden Life of Trees, Peter Wallabin, Black liberation ecologist and artist, Bronte Velez, and then Adrian Marie Brown, the author of the momentous new book, Emergent Strategy, and so much more. See you soon.